This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 314. And the quote of the day is, judging a person does not define who they are. It defines who you are. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. This is session 314 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. And if you're looking for the other, you can find 300 episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Casts, all that, all, all of the all of the podcast players, but they only show 300. So if you want the other 14 now, so there's 314 of them, you can go to drummersresource.com to find those also, while you're on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or any of those, click the subscribe button. What that does, you'll automatically get the podcast delivered right to your right to your app uh, as soon as you open it, so they'll be good to go, and you won't miss any episodes. So you can do that on every single one of those platforms. Just hit that subscribe button. If you're there and you're feeling generous, go ahead and leave a rating or a review. Uh, you can leave a one rating review or a one star review if you want. I'd love a five star, but I want you to be honest. So do what you got to do on that. And we're going to get right into this conversation, but first, I want to let you know of a great way that you can save some bread on a purchase that you need to make. If you go to casiomusic.com and use the promo code POD25, P-O-D-25, you can save 25% off of any order over 149 bucks. Now, Casio Music has been in business for over 70 years. Why? Because they get the right instrument in your hands at the right price and they always take care of their customers. 70 years in business proves that. And they're stepping it up by giving you 25% over any order over 149. That is no small gesture. You can capitalize on that. Go to Casio Music, C A S C I O music.com and use the promo code POD25, P O D. Now, let's get into this conversation with JT Thomas, and he is a drummer. He's from the Texas area and well-known for playing with Snarky Puppy, uh, but he's also in a a bunch of other bands, which we talk about in here as well. And this conversation is really interesting because we talk about the stigma behind cover bands, and and he is all all for cover bands. I agree that if you're playing music, you're playing music, and I think everyone listening knows that that I'm always trying to change the narrative of what it means to be a quote unquote successful drummer or a a professional drummer or whatever the hell that means. But so we are both in agreement that, Hey, if you're playing music, you're playing music and, and you never knew who you're going to meet on those gigs and things like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of great information in here, really inspiring stuff. And I want to not waste any more time. Let's get into it with the one and only Jason JT Thomas. JT, what's happening, man? How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for doing Notice how I just said JT because I was like, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> because as I told you off air, Justin, who works for uh, works for me here at Drummer's Resource, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't, I'm, I've been calling, I've been calling you Justin in my brain for the last, you know, week. So we, oh, I'm just going to stick with JT. That way I can't yeah. mess it up. <laughs> It <laughs> <That> works perfect. <laughs> um, so I know right now you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Who you're on the road with right now? I am out on the road with a band called Fork. Fork, F O R K. Yes, F O R Q. Actually, ah, that's why I asked. We had okay. to be weird. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So tell me about that band. 
This band is a band started back in like 2010, I believe. It was an idea with uh, Mike League from Snarky Puppy mm-hmm. and uh, got a keyboard player named Henry Hay from New York. Uh, might be best known for his recent band from a few years ago called Rudder. It was like okay. him, yeah, Jim yeah. LaFave and Keith Carlock mm-hmm. and Chris Cheeky, I believe. Yeah, they I saw them in New to, York a few times. Yeah, Rudder was kind of disbanding at that point because all those guys had just gotten too too busy, right. especially Tim and, and Keith Carlock. So Mike and Henry were talking about trying to do something. Well, Mike was wanting to try to do something smaller than Snarky right. at that time because it was just so expensive taking that band out. That's when they were kind of still building so There's only 87 like, people in that yeah, band. What's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so they were just talking about having something smaller, and me and Mike had mentioned about possibly doing something smaller. We had played in a, a few trios and stuff together when he was still in Texas. So they had called me up once they got the idea, and the original guitar player, well, the first one, was uh, Adam Rogers okay. from New York. So we literally just got together just to play initially just to just do some gigs Mm -hmm. did a first show at 55 bar and went extremely well we like they henry had a few tunes he had written i think possibly for rudder but they never got around to recording them mike has some tunes from like the early snarky puppy records and adam had a few and we just rehearsed those and did a show that night at 55, but it went way better than we ever expected it was supposed <laughs> to. It was a, a, a one-off with some guys that we had never played with was never supposed to go that well. Right. Well, what was the idea? Just to, I mean, were you planning on taking it, taking it out on the road, or was it just like, hey, let's just check it out and see what happens? Yeah, I don't think initially that was the intent because it was so weird. We originally did that first gig. And then we went back home, and I remember like a week later, a couple of weeks later, Henry had kind of like sent an email back to everybody. He was like, I, I want to do that again. <laughs> like, like, can we do that again like soon? So he flew me literally back out like a few weeks later on his miles. Oh, <laughs> nice. Get me back out, and we did another gig. And at that point, I think we wanted to do something, but everybody was just kind of spread out doing so many other things that we didn't get together again until like 2014. Right. And then once we did that, and it was the same thing, just out of the blue, Henry sends an email to everybody. It was like the Blues Brothers kind of thing, like we're putting the band back together. <laughs> the band back together. It just came out of nowhere because we had talked to each other, but, but you know, we didn't even have a name with a group back then. It was just, you know, we had got together and played, but it literally never went any further than that. So. Right. He sent the email. He was like, we want to put the band back together again, and this time we're going to go in the studio and record. So that was the first record that we did with Adam. And then from then, we knew that it was the intent to go ahead and keep pushing this forward. So now we're on our third record, and after the first record, we knew Adam was going to be really, really hard to to tour with because he's just too busy with all the other stuff he does. Right. So we pulled in uh, Chris McQueen, the original uh, snarky guitar player. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've been rolling ever since. What um, I, w- I want to backtrack a little bit because I knew. Okay. Like, so you're from Texas, right? So you grew up yes. in Texas. Because I want to, I want to sort of paint this picture of how these things start to happen. Um, yes. So you grew up in Texas, and I know you started playing really young, right? Like three years old. Yeah, I started playing at three. 
it's the the thing that's amazing to me is I mean I've done you know 300 of these interviews and yeah. it's always people either start at three or they start at like nine way late yeah or, and there's like there's I don't hear a lot of people who start and and then you know there's me who starts at 15 like an idiot but <laughs> um but well because I always thought I was gonna be like. I thought I was going to be a rapper, and then I wanted to be MC Hammer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and uh, so that didn't happen, actually, or apparently. But um, so growing up, so when you started at three, and let me let me say another thing. It, all, it always seems like the people who started at three also played in church. Yep. Which is a weird, I don't know why there's that connection, yep. but most of the guys are like, yeah, I grew up playing in church. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. When did you start playing? I started playing at three years old. Yep. Um, so so tell me about that. So how, how old were you when you started actually playing in the church? And was there influence from your family? Did Are your family musicians? Or, or what, did you just decide to pick up drumsticks one day? Yeah, my, my father plays drums and sings, and my mother sings and plays piano so that's ah. and then my aunts and uncles they all they all sing and all of them play something either guitar or drums or keyboards right. or something so that's being around connection. music for me was just normal I, I didn't didn't know a world without it right do you think that most people who grow up playing in church they probably already had relatives who were playing in church. And uh, yeah. so they're exposed to it at such an early age. So, you know, it's common for them at three years old for there to be drumsticks laying around the house or for yeah. there to be a piano in the house or something like that. I think so, because I know a lot, of, a lot of my friends that started that young where we all kind of have the similar stories, either right. someone in the family immediately played or other family members, and it was just kind of the normal thing to do yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah because i started playing at church uh the church that my family was going to at that time i started playing there when i was seven mm -hmm. they all had a youth choir so it was always always an opportunity to play when you were that young because most of the churches had like a youth uh children's choir or youth choir or something that we could all play for it was all young guys too so i started that when i was seven and i, I played at that church and i was 18 oh wow so that was every week I had that. <laughs> it's amazing that – are you familiar with the 10,000-hour rule? No, I'm not. So Malcolm, there's a, an author named Mar Malth Mar ugh, Malcolm Gladwell. I can't talk for some reason. I got to let this <laughs> coffee kick in. So he has a theory about that it takes 10,000 hours to really master an instrument, right? Or or master anything, whether it be business, yeah. an instrument, you know, whatever it is, writing. Um, and so I, a lot of times guys see people, you know, coming up and they're like, oh man, th this kid's 17 and he's killing, he's amazing. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, he's already been playing for 14 years. Yeah. You know, when he's, if he starts at three years old, he's already on that 10,000 hour journey at three years old. If you started at That's nine, true. you're, you're, he's already got six years on you. So yeah. when, when you guys are both 17, this guy's been playing for so much longer than you have. Wow. Um, and I, I just think it's such an interesting thing that like the people who really excel, who started it at such a young age, it's like, yeah, well, they have, they have all these, they have all these hours built into it already. Exactly. So like you would you you know, at 18, you'd already been playing for 15 years. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. So like I've, I've only been, you know, well, what now I've been playing for what, 20 years if I, I or 21 years and I'm 36, mm -hmm. you know? 
you wow. already got 15 in at 18. <laughs> you know, so like you're so far ahead of every of everyone else. And it's I, I, and what I'm trying to say here, I'm rambling, but I think people are just like, oh, they're so talented. And I'm like, well, they're skilled, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because even with those those younger years, it's a lot of those years wasn't the typical. Yeah, that's just a kid that plays drums. I was. I was actively at seven years old. I was going to rehearsals and playing two services a weekend. And right. I, I did that for 11 years yep. <laughs> as yep. a kid on top of, and literally not even counting the, the, the high school stuff. That was just church. Mm-hmm. So from like seven till probably around 13 or 14, that was all I did was play at church. So that was my, my gig right. per se. So I, the playing at the school or playing with the school jazz band and all that stuff, that wasn't even counting that because I started doing that young too. Because I, I played with my high school jazz band when I was in junior high school because okay. I knew the band director. The band director loved the way I played. He would just let me come up and play with the high school band. Nice. And you, and then you have to rise to that level. Yeah. You get pulled up and and not only that you're playing. You know you're playing. Uh, you're playing gospel, you're playing secular music. I mean, you're playing all sorts of different stuff. You're not just playing one style. I mean, you're getting, you know, you're getting like a college degree at a young age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What was yeah, the... This... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was... When you said a lot of people don't think about the years, yeah, it doesn't really hit you until you meet another kid later on that's playing, like, full-on playing at, like, six. Yeah. And they're doing shows, yep. and most of it is usually at a church. But they're they're playing full on services by the time they're six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that means they are learning the songs, they're doing rehearsals, they're working that stuff out, and they're six, seven years old. They're it's professional like, musicians. They're professional musicians at yeah. that point. Yeah, it's scary. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, Thomas Pridgen won the Guitar Center Drum Off at nine. At nine, you know. And people are like, oh, that's amazing, which don't get me wrong. It is amazing. I'm not discounting yeah. what Thomas Pridgen did. But like, okay, if he started at two, you know, yep. he's been playing for seven years. For seven years. It's you the know? same thing with a little guy from, uh, he's all our, our little brothers, even though he's taller than all of us now, uh, <laughs> Mike Mitchell from yeah. Dallas. It was the same thing from him. We all kind of just got used to him playing because we've all known him since he was a little, I think Sput may, I think Sput may have been around when he was born. Oh wow! And I met and I met little Mike at six. Okay. And when he was six, it was the same thing. He had already been playing at church since he was maybe four or five. Uh, wow! So when I met him, I met him at six. He had already done like a full on live recording to a click track with his church choir. That's amazing. So <laughs> it's, it's no wonder why he sounds the way he does now. And I was I was going to ask is it is it the the competitive environment inside of a church is is it like because churches to me are they're like incubators like they I mean they just like churches just just pump out amazing musicians and yeah. I'm, I'm thinking is it is it the competitive environment or is it just the sheer fact that these people are doing it for years you know at a at a year early young age or is it both is there a lot of competition inside of it i think it's both i think it's a lot of competition now probably maybe over the last decade just because the guys are getting younger and younger yeah that are starting in church and it's more of them in the church so with me it was just me and my father playing drums at the church mm-hmm. and that was it now 
you may have three or four or five kids kind of jockeying for that spot. Right, right. So even though they may not admit it, it's definitely some competition happening. Like, well, when it gets to my turn on this song, right. I'm going to make sure that you remember me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I definitely think it's some, some healthy competition going on now. It's like it's, a sport now. Yeah. I, I didn't grow up like that in church. It's like church now. It's like I couldn't imagine growing up now because of the level that they're having to play at so quick. And it's, yeah. if you're not there, there's two or three other guys like in line that they'll just, I'll go ahead and let him play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, didn't have to worry, I didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> I mean, I think about like what we would do if there were nine and 10 year olds hitting like 600 foot home runs in major league baseball, you know, like that's like, I equate it to that. Yeah. It's the I, same I mean, thing. Yeah. Some of these kids are just, I mean, God bless them. They're amazing. It's, I mean, yes. it makes me want to retire, but you know, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> I'm like, the more and more I think about it, I'm like, man, this might be a young man's game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so you were, you talked about um, going through high school, you go through the jazz band and everything. So what'd you do after high school? Did you go, did you go to college? Did you start touring? Were you like immediately sucked into the, into the scene? I actually went to college for about two years as a junior college in the city I grew up in is Weatherford, Texas. It was kind of a known small junior college there named Weatherford College, junior okay. college. That a lot of the it was kind of a, a open door to a lot of the Bishop Art schools, mm-hmm. uh, guys from the Dallas Art School. Right. So a lot of those guys like Sput and Sput came through there and Tehran didn't come through there or not. But it was a lot of Sput. But the kind of that year that Sput was there, a lot of those guys, the bass players, the horn players, they all came through whether for junior college. It was kind of just an easy, affordable school at that point. Right. And the music department at that school was always known to be really kind of high level at that, even though it was a junior college. Mm-hmm. And at this point, are you thinking like I'm music? That's it. That like I'm going to be yeah. a professional drummer. I mean, you yeah. were already a professional drummer, but were you like I'm going to do this as a career? That's oh, it. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And then I jumped in at that for about two years and then found out about a band needing a drummer that was doing a lot of touring overseas. At that point, it was a lot of bands, a lot of cover bands doing, they call it like F&B. It was like food and beverage thing that they would do over in these big five-star hotels overseas Mm -hmm. that had like bands in their hotel club. And they would hire these bands from everywhere to come and play at their club for two or three months at a time. It's almost like treated like a cruise ship thing. You play right. there six nights a week, yeah. one day off, three sets a night. So I and where was that? that? That was my first tour I did with them was in Taipei, Taiwan. Because I played with a with a bass player for years that he used to do the same thing. He would go to China and yep. same deal. He's like, we play you know six nights a week, and he was there for you know an extended period of time, couple months or whatever it was. He's like, it paid really well. They take care of you. They're like you know the whole nine. Plus you're you're in this other country. You don't have to move your gear. It's like it's just this nice residency. That was an amazing time, and I didn't really pay attention to it too much because I just loved playing. But right. And you were talking about the hours. Yeah, looking back on that, I did that for in different countries. I played with that band for about two years, and that was six nights a week, three sets a night right. that I was playing and singing all that time. That's nuts. So I did that. So, of course, I didn't finish school. Wish I could reverse that. <laughs> <laughs> 
it happens a lot. It's like, well, I got this other thing, you know, and let me, yeah. let me keep going doing this. I just got into that. So that, that happened about two years after starting Weatherford, jumped right into that. And once I got into just working, mm. once I left that band and came back to Dallas, I just, I dove right into the Dallas scene. So what year are we talking? That was actually probably around 94. So actually I skipped. So right out of high school, right into college, even when I was into college, that's how they got my number. I started playing with cover bands right out of high school. Mm-hmm. My brother was in a cover band, and I started playing with him. It was an R&B band. I started doing that when I was like 17. Right. It was right out of high school. So even in my first few years of college, I was already working on the local scene, Dallas club scene, for like three or four nights a week. Let me get your opinion on this. So I, I talked to um, – I had lunch with Ndugu Chancellor, and he was talking about how um, how guys now don't want to – they don't want to do corporate gigs. They don't want to do – uh, they don't want to do weddings. They don't want to do, he's like, they want the big tour or they want, and he's like, you know, I would go in and, in the studio and work with Michael Jackson and I would leave there and I would literally go play like a bar mitzvah, you know? Exactly. And he's like, I, I owned a tuxedo. I have now granted some of these or a lot of these gigs, those type of like, you know, those corporate gigs, um, are are drying up. So there's, there's no question about that. But do you see, do you see sort of like a jadedness towards like, if you're like, oh, I'm I play in a corporate band, you know, and people are kind of like, ah, oh, you play in a corporate band? It's like, yeah, but dude, you work at yeah. Starbucks and work and play two nights a week. Like I play five nights a week and I do that full time, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a, and I don't know where that started coming from with some of the younger guys. It's it's definitely a stigma yeah. attached just to that word cover band. It automatically, for some reason nowadays, puts you automatically in a category of, Either your quality level of play just gets diminished almost in half Mm -hmm. or they just don't even really kind of take you seriously. It's like, oh, he's just a cover band guy. I'm I'm like, I've had to correct a bunch of them and let them know. I'm like, well, if you like the way I play, then I can wholeheartedly tell you 80 percent of the reason I play the way I do is because I've spent the majority of my career playing cover band gigs. Right. Right. I said learning all those things. The level of attention and detail you have to really, if you're in a cover band that's a really good one, then you have to learn every style authentically if you want to get called back. And the guys that I subbed for, the first, as far as cover band, I did a lot of R&B bands first, but like probably around 94, 95, once I stopped doing the overseas stuff and I came home, that's when I started. The first guy I started subbing for was a guy named, it was Keith Carlock. Yeah. Oh, I, so stepping, <laughs> I know in his, stepping in his shoes was immediate like I mean they were playing stuff that I had never even heard of man how do you even do that how do you step into Keith Carlock's shoes it was at that point for me once I saw the band and I saw what they were doing like he invited me out to come and see the band he saw me playing with an R&B band we both ended up on this random arts festival in Dallas and they were on the bill and I was on the bill with this other R&B band that I had been playing with forever and he saw me play, and he was like, man, I'd, I'd love for you to come out and see the band I'm playing with. I think you'd be a, a perfect sub for me when I'm out, and I got some other stuff that I'm doing. I said, sure, I'll come and see the band. And I was just listening to their song. Just, they were going from one style to the next. And it was, I think the one thing that helped me is growing up as an 80s kid, a lot of that stuff that they were playing, I knew just because I heard it on the radio or right. I listened to it myself. So kind of the classic rock stuff. I didn't know as far back as they went, but 
it wasn't that far fetched for me because I was eighties rock kid anyway. Right, right. So once I heard that, I was actually excited to do a gig like that. I was like, oh, I get to play all this stuff that I don't get to play in these R and B bands. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the R and B bands I was playing at that time, even back then, was using tracks. Oh wow! It was like drum machine slash keyboard and the combination of both and full on stuff with drums in it already. So this is a big like 13 piece band with horns and no click. So I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be amazing. I get to sub for this guy. Call me immediately. So <laughs> when they sent me the song list, I just dove in with the attitude of, well, okay, they want me to sit in for Keith. I have to play it at least as exactly what Keith is playing. Right. So I can get the call back. So it was just kind of always this attitude as, as a feeling that I've had, whoever I'm filling in for, I have to do, I have to start where they are. Mm-hmm. And then if I can go further and do my own thing with it, then cool. But I have to at least do it at the level that the guy that I'm subbing in for, right. just so everybody else on the bandstand is comfortable. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. just never wanted to be that guy on the stage that, especially with the drummer chair, because you just tank a gig. And yeah. I never wanted to be that guy that just like, oh, man, who's this dude you got sitting in for us? Like, OK, we're going to get through this gig, but please never call him back. So do you go in with the attitude of like, I'm trying to get this gig or you're just trying to go in to just do the best job subbing and that's it? I'm usually it's always I'm trying to do the best job subbing. It's, it's never been with the attitude of I want to take the gig because I know some guys are like that. That's just real dirty. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's just more so respect for the guy that called me. Mm-hmm. I I don't want them pissed because I didn't know that until I recommended somebody and they folded. That I didn't realize how bad that comes back on you. Yeah, yeah. Because you recommended him. So yeah, I never wanted to be be that guy. I was like Keith called me at that point. It was all it was literally at well Keith is a freaking monster. So if I'm coming in to sub for him, I have to kill. Yeah, you got to bring it. it it was like, I have no other choice because if I don't, that's going to make him look bad. It's going to make Leak Meat look bad. And I'm never going to get called back. Of course. Just. I always tried to find guys, if I was finding someone to sub for me, I'd always try to find a better drummer than me. Yeah. You know, yep. I mean, which isn't hard. I could like walk out on the sidewalk and find somebody that's better than me. But, oh, man, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, but that was always my thing. I would say, I need, I want someone because if they don't, you know, if, if especially if it's a last minute thing they don't know the tunes as well as i do obviously um so i need someone who's better than me so that they can adapt quickly they can you know they're gonna learn these tunes and that's always been my thing it's like you know that's i that's the level of professionalism that when you exude that or when you come into a gig like yourself and and you're you have that level of professionalism it travels it tra- it's like, man, he came in, he came in cold, but he knew all the tunes. Like, you know, he was professional. He, he killed it. He was easy to work with, help, you know, help the bass player move his rig, you know, like the guy's a yeah. team player. And when he was done, he thanked everybody and like took his money and went home. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And that's exactly what happened. It was, it went from me being on kind of the Chitlin R&B circuit with all these R&B bands in Dallas mm-hmm. doing that same little three or four clubs that they do. And that's it. Right. So once I sat in with him, just even before I sat in, just when I came and just initially just like two or three gigs they had, I just came just to meet everybody in the band. Right. And sit in with like a couple of songs on their set. Just from that point, it started to change for me. And when I actually first did a complete gig with them from that point, my workload switched almost a double because that world of the R&B side versus the top 40 band and cover band side 
I got introduced to a whole other side and clubs of Dallas that I had never even heard of or even seen. Right, right, right. And all of a sudden, this whole world of other musicians got introduced to me and me introduced to them. And it was the same thing. It was like, oh, that dude's subbing for Keith. Yeah. Yep. And then what was attached to that was, yeah, he came in and it literally became like I was whatever band at that point I was playing with with Keith after a while. I just kind of got known as it wasn't a sub. They just kind of dubbed me as our other drummer. Right. Right. Because I would know the material to the point where they didn't feel like it was a sub. Mm-hmm. They felt like they could call whatever song they would normally do with with Keith or whatever they would do. They would just perform that night like he was there. Right. Even though it was me. And I'm sure it's a different it's different, not in a bad way, but it's just it's different. It's you know, it might be fresh or it might be, you know, it'll have a different a different vibe to it, but like but good. Just the energy and the preparation and the attitude like you said and everything was it's like, man, most subs don't it's like we expected you to kinda mess up on some things. We were not expecting to even be able to do some of those songs. And, right. And I was like, well, I thought I had to know everything. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I just. I overprepared. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. He gave me the song list and I was like, ooh, 30 some songs. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's like, let's just, let's go. Let's have it. So from that point, yeah, my name kind of spread around town as in call this dude. Mm-hmm. It's like he's, he's what you want for a sub. My friends over at Musicians Institute there in Hollywood, California want to know that if your playing has hit the ceiling, then you need to get your tail into Musicians Institute and sharpen your skill set. You can learn everything from performance. They have gospel drumming. They have electronic drumming. They have music production, bass, keyboards, drums, guitar, all of that stuff. And it's all there at Musicians Institute. And you can learn more about them and find out all about their great courses by going to mi.edu. Listen, you may sit in the back of the stage, but the band revolves around you. You set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set the tone is to play Evans drum heads with level 360 technology. These heads are trusted by Chris Coleman, Anika Niles, and they offer the most consistent fit for every drum and max tunability all around. Plus, they take you beyond the normal tuning range for higher highs and lower lows. Now, the sound that you want will always be the sound that you get. You can check out Evans drum heads with the Level 360 technology at diadario.com. Now, let's get back into it with JT. It's interesting that that the way that, I mean, this, this has been brought up time and time again, that like how these gigs happen and like how your career takes shape. And I think we as humans are... I don't want to say instant gratification, but a lot of times we're impatient. So we're, we're like, man, I just want this. I want to be playing with that guy tomorrow, or I want to be playing. I want to be playing a hundred gigs, you know, a year by next week. And it's like, well, if you're playing zero now, like, let's try to get, let's try to get five gigs and let's try to network and play. And you never know where one gig is going to lead to the next. It's going to lead to the next. And it's that constant one foot in front of the other, literally every single day. And then you look back and you're like, wow, I've actually come pretty far, man. I'm playing with a lot of people. I'm touring. I'm doing this. It's like, how did this, how did this thing even happen? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the same thing with the, with the back, even with the, the stigma of the, the guy that plays in the corporate band now just kind of how they, you know, stick their nose up to it. I'm like, I, I just as of recently over the last couple of years, I still know a lot of guys that's 
doing that. They'll come off the road. I was in a, a cover band that, out of New York, and she's known for having like A-list touring guys coming in and out of her band regularly. When they're not on tour, mm-hmm. they're working for her. It's a way to do and it. It's because she still pays really well. She takes care of them. It keeps them playing. And a gig is a gig to them. They're like, yep. I'm, I'm not going to turn it down when she's paying what I make on tour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Still, uh, I'm playing 20 Jewish tunes maybe that night and you know, <laughs> whatever else I'm playing, the typical corporate stuff and wedding band stuff you do. But they were like, man, no, you work. I'm in New York. I'm working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I was on stage with a bunch of those guys that were on Stewart tour with Sting and Jennifer Lopez and just all these big tours and I was at a wedding with them. Yep. And that's how you meet the MD or whoever, and they hire you for this thing or, you know. Exactly. I'm like, if I had came on this and treated this like I know a lot of these guys do now, man, my name would have a a real messed up attachment to it. Yeah. They're like, yeah, Yeah. I did a gig with that guy. They're like, yeah, no. No, don't don't, use him. don't, don't, Don't use him. Yeah. I uh, I played a bar like some random like small little bar gig and the bass player is like oh yeah he's like I played with Boys to Men for years and he was like and I, wow. you know, I was working with D'Angelo and and uh, some all these other people and he and then he and I became friends I played with him for fifteen years beautiful you know? man you know and it's like awesome. you never you never know never, never know uh, so talk talk to me about Snarky Puppy Snarky Puppy to me is a is sort of an enigma I don't I don't yeah. It's like this band that I'm going to say that it skyrocketed out of nothing, but it didn't. I know that there's there was years of, of, of the stuff that you don't see. Um, yeah. But I feel like you guys hit the map, uh, just like blew up. But the other yeah. thing, the other side of it is like we talked about, there's like 87 people in the band. You know, <laughs> there's there's nine different drummers and all that. So talk to me about yeah. one, how, how you became part of Snarky Puppy, but also I, I'm really interested to know how the whole thing works. With Snarky, I met those guys. Um, we all met kind of, well, I don't know about them, but I know I met them through my affiliation with a band called R.H. Factor. Okay. It was uh, Roy Hargrove's R.H. Factor mm-hmm. band. It was his big kind of funk hip-hop band. Uh, come to find out, it was a big influence on them. Um, a lot of us from that band, there was like three or four of those guys, we all lived in Dallas. We didn't even know at the time until we met them later on that they were listening to us and they knew we lived in town, but they never met us because it was always this weird. There's guys that live in Dallas and even though Denton was like 30, 45 minutes north, they never came together. It was like, oh, really? You were a North Texas guy and then you were a Dallas guy. I'm like, it's mm. the same Metroplex. <laughs> but it was always this weird disconnect. So they were there that whole time, didn't even know it. And we were all living in Dallas and we never met each other, but they were listening to us. So that was just so weird when we met. And it was a trumpet player named Philip Lasseter mm-hmm. that lived in Dallas at the time, trumpet player, keyboard player. And he was working at a church and MD for there. He had hired one of the saxophone players from Irish Factor, Keith Anderson, and they were looking for a drummer. So Keith told him about me and I came out, worked with him a few times at the church and so I was always on his radar as in to call me when you need me. Mm-hmm. He moved to a different church and he ended up putting a different band together and he had a young bass player and he called everybody immediately. Everybody he knew was like, man, you got to come hear this kid, Mike, on bass. I got this young kid out of North Texas named Mike Lee. You got to come hear this kid play bass. 
So Saturday, he called me just out the blue to come and play at the church service. Mike was there okay. playing that weekend. It was like the band was me, Philip, Mike League, and Bernard Wright on keys. So it was like this ridiculous church band <laughs> for this Saturday service, like this one Saturday service. And that's when I met Mike. Curly head, real skinny, just not too much hair on his face, right. playing a four-string Ken Smith. Right. <laughs> so I was like, yo, who is this kid on bass? <laughs> and then he started playing. I was like, now I see why Philip was calling everybody like, you got to come hear this dude. Then he was like, you got to come hear his band. He was like, he's got this band at the school called Snarky Pup. You got to go hear this band. When he met me that night, he was like, I introduced myself. And he was like, oh, yeah, I already know who you are. I know all about you. I'm like, huh? <laughs> he was like, you play with R.H. Factor. I was like, yeah, how do you know that? It's like, man, we've been listening to that record since it came out. All the guys at school listen to that record every day. I'm like, who knew? I just, when the R.H. Factor stuff came out, we just kind of not so much dismissed it, but we just, all the shows that we were doing was always overseas. We never worked in the States. Oh, really? We just kind of never thought about the fact of kids were actually listening to it in the U.S. We mm -hmm. just never even really considered it. So it would always crack us up. It still does when people tell us they listen to that record. But especially out in North Texas, we were like, I would never have thought anybody out there in North Texas was listening to that record. <laughs> so when they told us that, it just really tripped me out. And he was like, yeah, I, I know about you, I know about Bobby, I know about Keith Anderson and mm -hmm. Todd. He was like, yeah, we've been listening to you guys for years. Because that record came out in 2002, 2003. I didn't meet Mike till like 2006, 2007. Oh, wow. So he had already been listening to me for like years and I didn't even know him. So once we met, he was like, man, I would love to have you. I know you guys play as a trio sometimes with Keith. It was me, Bobby, and Keith in the trio. I'd love for you guys to come out and do a show with us, with our with my band out at, you know, out of North Texas. There's a couple of clubs there in Denton where Snarky would play like every week, and they would just play there all the time. So they invited us out to do a show with them. And I still remember when I first saw that band, my intention was to, as normal, do my show, maybe stick around for a couple of songs, check them out, and go to the house. Right. Hour and a half later, I'm still standing there <laughs> looking at the stage like I'm I'm not believing what I'm really seeing and listening to coming out of North Texas. Who was that playing drums for him at the time? The original drummer was a guy named Steve Pruitt. Okay. And let's see, I'm trying to remember the keyboard player's name. I, I can't remember her name. It was a, a female keyboard player. And the horn section, Moz was there, and it was two different other guys then that don't that don't play with him now. Okay. And I don't think they had a guitar player at that at that point. Nate was there, and Nate used to sit down and play percussion, actually. All his stuff was like kind of almost set up like he was playing tablas. Right. All the percussion stuff, he was kind of sitting and playing. So I remember, especially when I first saw him, just seeing his setup. I was like, yo, who who is the percussion player? <laughs> he had like a kick drum, like snare, and some kunga stuff, and some more traditional stuff, and then he had symbols everywhere and i'm like this is not the norm percussion setup that i've ever seen before i'm like i gotta hear this dude play so they kicked into like their first couple of songs and i was like i think at that time i remember calling my wife and i was like um i'm gonna be home a little late because <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to check the rest of this out because this is kind of tripping me out it's like this this band is in here and it totally kind of completely caught me off guard right it was all original music it was really well written and thought out. Mm -hmm. And you could tell everything was very rehearsed. 
they had really worked all this stuff up, but they were all, you know, probably 10, 15 years younger than me. Right. Yeah. So they were still essentially, quote unquote, kids at that point. But I'm like, not at the level that they're playing at. It's right. not the typical college band <laughs> that you're going to hear, especially coming out of North Texas. That was the other thing. I'm like, yeah, you guys are definitely you go here, but you're not representing what what has been typical coming out of North Texas. Right. Uh, all these years so at that point we became really good friends and that's when kind of the merging of mike and a lot of those guys in the dallas scene and the dallas gospel scene especially kind of started happening at that point because once philip started using mike at the church philip literally was just calling everybody he knew like call this guy hire this guy and anybody in the band they were like these guys can play anything call them right and philip was already kind of meshed into the Dallas gospel scene as well because he was using a lot of those guys on his recordings and playing. So he knew Sean Martin and he knew Sput. And once you got introduced to those two guys, that introduces you to all the other gospel guys in Dallas. So Mike got on a few situations where he subbed, I think, for Sput on some stuff. And then Sput was like, I'm calling you for everything I can. Nice. And it just started that met him. He met Sean through that. And then he started, I think, doing some stuff with like Kirk Franklin and he just started meshing into this whole world. And then they also got introduced to Snarky. And once those guys saw the band, it was the same reaction. Like, who are y'all? <laughs> what are you guys, how's this been sitting 40 minutes north of us and we've never heard y'all? Like, right. this is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. So it was like, well, we're going to change that. And it just literally from that point, all of us just became friends that started playing together they started coming to dallas and playing gigs a lot with other dallas guys and that's when i started doing a, tr a every monday night trio thing it was me mike league and bernard wright and we did every monday night for like two years at this small club in, in dallas and that's when i started playing with him a lot and then of course guys from the band would come and sit in on those nights and that's how i started kind of getting close to the rest of the guys mm -hmm. in the band as well but I was always working a lot with the RH Factor band, and I was still doing a lot of smooth jazz touring during that time, too. So when they were on the road a lot, even their first drummer, Steve, was there, I think, till like, 07. And then that's when Sput came in. But it was funny because Sput originally came in playing keyboard. Oh, really? Yeah, because Sput is equal as on keyboards as he is on drums. <laughs> so he originally came in subbing for them on keys. And then that he I switched to drums. Yeah, he switched to drums after that point, and then they started having Bernard Wright and Bobby come in and play keys with them as well. Mm. So once he started playing drums, he was pretty much there for every single thing they did for some years. They would call me every now and then to sub, but I just never could do it because I was always out on tour. So mm -hmm. randomly, through all those years, we were still friends, and I still knew them, and we still played with trio stuff every now and then. And in 2013... Some random gig they had pop up in Irving, Texas, and Sput couldn't make it. He was out, I think, with Kirk somewhere. And they called me to do it, and I was actually available to do it. That was the first time I actually played with the band, like 2011, I think. Yeah, and, and you have to learn all those tunes. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing knowing kind of the band and you've heard the material, and then you got to play it. Right. That was, it was, I can't say it was... A nightmare, but it was kind of intimidating. Right. 
Hey man, do you want to do you want to sub? Nah, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'll just watch. I accepted it, and then I was like, oh man, I've got to learn all those songs. And not only do I got to learn the songs, I got to kind of get caught up to their newly arranged live versions of them. Now that they've been playing them every night, right? <laughs> with with Sput, I'm like, oh okay. I'm like, okay, reduce this down to what? What's the last set list you just did? Mm-hmm. I'm like, send me that, send me whatever MP3s you got, and we'll just go from there. Figure it out. <laughs> so we did like an hour rehearsal the day before, ran through most of the stuff. Luckily, the stuff, I had all the stuff because I had all the CDs anyway. Right. And, and listened to them enough. And thankfully, me and Sput kind of come enough from the same world. The stuff that he was doing made sense to me. Mm-hmm. The only thing that gets tricky with Sput is because he's ambidextrous, mm-hmm. so it gets a little tricky with his sticking because a lot of stuff he unconsciously does it, but he'll lead with his left hand. Right. And he just does it. It's nothing that he plans to do like real methodical. Like I'm going to play with my left hand. on this right. part. He just does it because it's more comfortable for him. Makes sense. And then I'll try to play and I'm like, this does not work at all. And then I'll ask him, I'm like, Oh, you did that with your left hand. Okay. Now I got it. Right. <laughs> So that was the only thing that got kind of tricky was his patterns mm-hmm. was just trying to figure out how I can play them right handed and yeah. still make it sound right and feel right. So arrangement wise, I had to learn to look at the music like a puzzle. Mike writes everything in pieces. It's literally sections put together as a tune. Oh, wow. It's, it's almost every section is almost like a little song of its own. You really have to learn those sections individually and then put them together. I got you. And once I kind of figured that out, that changed the way learning their material. For me, it made it so much more easier than trying to listen to the whole song and trying to get all that in one listen. I had to just listen to their stuff in pieces. Once I figured out those sections and then figured out that's how they that's how they teach a lot of those songs. Everybody's wondering like, how do they listen to all that stuff and they're not reading charts on their recordings and it's not that there aren't charts. But after a while, they kind of got past that, and it was just easier for them to just take it section by section. Just learn this section, drill it, memorize it. Okay, next section. Right. Do the same thing, come back, put them all together, and it just made more sense. I got so, it. So, it's, yeah, it's learning the, materials um, was not, not easy. Man, <laughs> I can't, I cannot even imagine. Um, I think on that first gig, they had the one that I was scared to death of, they had just started doing What About Me. Oh, uh, really? That was the new song in the set. And they're like, here you go. <laughs> this was long before it got to the We Like It Here record. They had been bouncing and kicking that tune around for a couple of years mm-hmm. at that point. They had just kind of started playing it for about a year. And I remember when it came up on the recording that he sent me, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like, I hope they're not going to call this tune. They were like, oh, yeah, that's what we end the set with. I'm like, oh. You're like, how many people are playing drums on this? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, dude, you got to be kidding me. Okay. All right. I'll, we'll, we'll get through it. All right. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> so how does it work now? So is, I mean, Sputs the, is he like the first call guy and then they just sort of go down the list or that they just send out the dates and they're like, who can do these dates or? It's now, um, Sput is pretty much full on ghost note. Okay. Him and they and along he's well he's got his label now too that's right. kind of being uh, distributed through uh, Good Music Company Ropadope, mm-hmm. the RSVP records. 
So Ropado, man, kinda, that's, they're from my hometown. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah he's spoke with his uh, label with the RSVP. He's kind of taken on that whole role as kind of label head and producing a lot of other projects, right. which he's always done, but he's doing a lot more of it now. And then really just kind of him and Nate have just really put their foot down hard on the ghost note. Yeah. And that's pretty much if he's not producing or playing on other session work or producing other artists, 75 percent of his whole schedule now is just all ghost note. It's pretty much that's first priority, everything he does. So he hasn't worked with the band now in the last probably two years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's primarily been now it's Larnell, me, and then uh, a guy, young guy from Florida, but he lives in New Orleans named Jameson Ross. Okay. So it's, between us three is pretty much how it goes now. And it's, yeah, it's, it's literally kind of a, a, a big email that'll go out to the whole band and it's who's available for what dates. And then once they get that list, they fine tune that list and find out, okay, who's going to be able to do this or who can do some of these but can't do these. And they'll just kind of finalize that list and send out another email of, okay, can we confirm you for these? Right, right, right. So it just kind of goes, it's an order, but it's not, it's kind of chaotic (laughs) in the way because it's just so many people. Uh But it's pretty much a a balance and a good equal balanced out, you know, Larnell will do these sets of dates, I'll do these sets of dates. Right. And kind of between, between us two, whatever we can't do, then we call Jameson. Okay. Can work that in. And so far, which has really been amazing because Jameson is his actual is a own his own artist on I don't know if it's Blue Note or oh, okay. maybe Blue Note or some other, but he's an artist under his own name because he won the Monk competition in the drums uh, a few years ago. So he's been recording under his own name and works under his own name a lot as so his own artist. Too. So it's been amazing that the times that we've needed him. He's always been available. Really? We ain't figured that out yet. <laughs> like, how random is that? That the times that we've called you, you're you're never working. Right. <laughs> but if we ever called before then, he never would have been able to do it. Yeah. Because he was always out with his own man. Yeah. So it's just been hilarious how it works out with this band, how just somehow all of us are always, one of us is always available to do the shows. It's so amazing to me how many how many irons everyone has in the fire all the time. Like years ago, man, like I, you know, it was like I played with one band and we just toured, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was, that was it. Like that, that was, that was good enough. And now it's like, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, we were making a lot of money, you know? And, and then it's like, okay, the money goes down a little bit and now you got to play in five different bands and you got to, you got to have, doing this thing and you know you got to start a podcast and do you know like, <laughs> yeah, you got to do all these other things um which i don't know man i i i like it personally um because i like i i get bored pretty easily so i like yes, and not in like yeah. a negative way but just like i like change and but some yeah, other people yeah. are like man i just want to play this one gig and play you know 100 mm-hmm. dates a year and, and i don't want to have to deal with anything else so there's yeah there's two sides to that you know yeah i, I think um and there's still some of the core guys that they do. They do every single show with mm-hmm. this with Snarky, and that's it's not that they don't do other stuff in between, but that's pretty much all they do. Right, right. Uh, I think that started to change. The only reason why the band grew to like three or four guys per instrument was literally out of necessity for other guys that that started out with them initially. And for all those years that they weren't making any money when they would go out, 
was they were starting to, especially once they moved to New York, they were working cover bands and, and touring with other bands, making money. So that kind of took them out of the loop to do snarky, but they didn't want snarky to end because of that. So to keep it moving, that's where the sub started. Like, okay, you need to go make that money because I know you haven't made any in, in right. a couple of months working with this band. So no, take that gig, find me somebody who can come in and play this material. And right. it's the same thing, like you said, go find guys that you know that can handle this material and is going to do the job and going to come here and perform. Right. Not to necessarily take the gig, but just so we can keep moving. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing a band of that size isn't a huge moneymaker. Initially, no. Yeah. We're Over the last few years, especially after everybody thinks it's after the Grammy, but it really wasn't after the Grammy. <laughs> yeah, they don't send you a check when you get the Grammy. <laughs> yeah, like, that is what actually pushed them into more getting more calls right once that started getting and they started getting bigger venues and that kind of set the tone or the process to start so they could start making more money because up until that point it was a grind still even up to that grammy that that first family dinner record was was done on a, a not even a shoestring budget right that was just we're gonna do this it's crazy but we're gonna do it anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> so whatever happens great we just we did it because right. that was just something they were doing in New York prior to that anyway, just as a means to one, keep playing for them to work with other people that they wanted to work with. And it was a way to just meet a lot of other people in New York. Yeah. Family dinner. Um, we're going to do sense, a thing. So they were like, we should probably record this. Yeah. Yep. Had no idea that that was going to happen because Layla just on a whim decided to, I'm going to do something freaky and sing two notes at the same time on this section. <laughs> Something that she just decided to do right then in the moment. Right. Never rehearsed. Wasn't talked about. I don't think she'd even started doing it that much in her own shows. Right. So it just happened. But it got caught on camera. Put it up on YouTube. All of a sudden, 200,000, 300,000, four. And they started calling each other like, are you are you seeing this? We have like 600,000 views. And it's only been up for like two weeks. What's the name of the video? The video is called uh, Family Dinner Volume 1, Layla Hathaway something. Because I want to I wanna link it in the show notes here. Yeah. It was the Layla Hathaway something from the Family Dinner 1. Okay. It ended up getting like a million views, I think, in like three weeks or so, like a month. Wow. And it was just nuts. And once that happened, people, the only way that people knew about the band at that point was because they were just on the road constantly just going from city to city playing wherever they could whoever said yes they would go there even if the stage couldn't fit but four people they would jam <laughs> they it out. stage they figured it out and played if they didn't make any money it didn't matter at that point it was just about let's just get the band out working so people see that we're out working right but right. once that youtube stuff came in and they started putting up clips of them playing and up on youtube of course that's using YouTube the way it should be used. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was just like, hello world. Yeah. And then with Layla, that introduced them to a whole nother world with singers. Mm-hmm. And then, it, so it just, this tree branch started happening. So that's really when things started changing for them monetarily as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a good couple of, maybe a year after that. So bigger rooms, bigger guarantees, yeah, yeah, yeah. more money. So, yeah, at first, yeah, it was definitely a grind and a commitment from everybody in that band to keep pushing because they weren't really making any money at all. Right. But now it's it's different. Guys are actually seeing 
the work pay off Good. for them. They definitely did it the old school way. So it's amazing too how starting something becomes a vehicle to do other things. Like for you know, even with yeah. me starting Drummers Resource, so like you know, it gives me a reason to talk to people. It gives me a reason to reach out to someone. It gets my foot in the door into something that maybe wouldn't have gotten me in the door before or something. So like absolutely. You know, so you have this band, and even. It, I mean, uh, thankfully, Snarky Puppy, you know, is making money and everything, but it could be a band that's really not making that much money, but it's opening mm-hmm. a lot of doors. It's connecting you. It may get you another gig. It may get you, you know, yeah. it, it, so it's uh, it's the idea of starting something or, yeah. or creating yeah. this thing that serves it, it may not it may the benefits of it may be all of these ancillary things that are that are yeah. sort of you know like i said getting your foot in the door or pushing mm-hmm. something further or getting you to meet different people and things like that and that's an amazing thing and with the internet and everything that we have now you can it's all at your fingertips definitely you know definitely 100 big changer what's that yeah, it was a big, big changer with the, with the internet. Yeah, 100%. From MySpace to YouTube. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Huge change. So what are the what's on tap for you now? So you're you're on tour right now with Fork. Uh, what else do you have in the works? I have, we're still doing Fork uh, this month. And then November, one of the other guitar players from Snarky, uh, Mark Lettieri, lives in Dallas as well. Uh, lives in Fort Worth. We've been, we just released his third CD earlier this year. So we've been touring with that a lot this year. Uh, he's been kind of wanting to, we had always kind of wanted to to push that as hard as we could mm-hmm. once we got the first two out. But once we did this third one, it was definitely an intent on his half. He was like, okay, even if it means I'm going to miss more snarky shows than normal because they, the guitar players in that band have a just as crazy as a rotation as the drummers. Right. So, he knew at that point he was like, "I'm I'm probably going to start missing because I want to go ahead and push the trio a lot harder." Mm-hmm. So we've been doing the trio pretty hard. So we're going back out again in November and kind of gearing up for next year. So it's nice. I have Fork this month, Mark Latiri in November, and then in December I'm back out with Snarky Puppy. They're doing a South America run. Uh, yeah, I saw and that. That'll actually. that'll that'll finish out this year. So not a bad way to, to end the year. Not at all. Not at all, my friend. And that's that's pretty much it for me. So if for, for that, um, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to to get up with you and, and follow, like social media? Is that the best way? Or that is it. I I have turned into and it's because I'm lazy and don't know how to really <laughs> work Facebook and everything else that well. Instagram to me is like the easiest access for social media for me, right? Because it all links to everything. So. I got to plug my computer in before it dies. All right. But yeah, my Instagram page, uh, uh, JT on JT on drums. The funny thing is, so Justin, who works with me, is Justin, the same thing is Justin Thomas on drums. <laughs> yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> or no, no, just it's on. It's Justin on drums. Justin on drums. Okay. Almost. Yeah. Tell me, you guys, are the, almost be you a guys are the same person. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for me has been a lifesaver because <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was so horrible with Facebook. And then I was off of Facebook for a long time and I came back like uh, about two years ago and man, it had changed so much and I really got like, okay, I can't, this is too much. You were like, I ch- I'm checking out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, and then they were like, well, you know, you can do everything on like Instagram and I hadn't even done Instagram ever. Right. So I was like, okay, what's this Instagram thing? And then I was I remember doing my first post and I looked on there at the end and it was like Facebook and Twitter. 
I was like, done. Oh, it connects to both of them. I'm like, okay. Yep. <laughs> there yeah. it is. I'm an Instagram guy. <laughs> I mean, plus for you, you're you know you're on the road a lot. You see a bunch of interesting stuff. You can just snap a picture and upload it. It's super yeah. easy. You don't have to write some thoughtful post and all that stuff. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so, and now that there's video yeah. on there, it's like, what else do you need? You know? Yeah, that's it. I still don't think Twitter. I think I've done maybe maybe five, ten tweets, like original, not retweets. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think my phone, I think I've done 10 since Twitter actually came to the picture. That world, I still don't get at Yeah, all. I mean, it's you got to get inside of it a little bit. I, I yeah. like it actually because it's a it's a really quick way to chat like one-on-one uh, you know, yeah. quickly and all that. But like, whatever, man, you know, <laughs> you're out, you're out making music and all that. You don't have to worry exactly. about managing your social media profile. So. <laughs> But uh, but Jason, I want to I want to thank you for for taking the time to chat with me. I do appreciate it. I know we've been trying to line this up for a while. I know you're busy. You're on the road. Yeah, you're running yeah. here. You're running there. Um, so I I want to thank you for for making this happen uh early early in the morning. So thank uh, you for having. Me. Of course, man. Anytime. It was it was great chatting with you. And uh, you too, I, man. I hope to see you on the road soon. Definitely, definitely, man. I I gotta wherever when next time we're back in the in the New York side. Or are you based in LA now? Uh, now I'm outside of San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Well, we were supposed to. Where did we play with Mark? We was just there with Mark Latiri. We did a West Coast run, and we didn't. Play, man, we we didn't play Big Sir or uh, uh, SF Jazz because they were booked already. So we did. I think it was Big Sir. Okay. Big Sir is beautiful. And man, yeah. I'd never seen that side. Yeah, it's beautiful. So just the drive up, he was like, because Mark is from from LA. So he was like, when you see, he was like, trust me, I know everybody wanted to play SF Jazz. I said, but man, this drive yeah. is, is going to make up for it, I promise you. It's and so man, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dude, this feels like I'm not even in the U.S. right now. Yeah, This is so gorgeous over here. It's amazing. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm coming back here just because. Yep. And staying at this same little hotel that's right close to the beach, and I said, "Man, I have to here." That's the way to do. So, it. Yeah, that was that was so funny. I'm trying to, trying to remember the place that we played. It was such a little random spot at this little hotel going through Big Sur. It literally kind of served even the lady that works there. She was like, "Yeah, this is not typically a venue. Right. We just offer live music at this kind of like a bed and breakfast almost." But she was like, it serves as bands that are coming through here because there is nowhere to play. That's and we cool. just started letting bands play here. So all of a sudden, this became a spot. Well, yeah, if you're coming through there, stop at this place and you can play. That's pretty it may cool. only be 10 people, but we'll let you come play here. Yeah, that's cool. And that's what it was. <laughs> I like it. I, like it was, it. I was like, man, I didn't care. That drive was good enough it's for me. It's all worth it. It's like a working vacation. Yeah. Man, yeah. So I know... He always does stuff on the West Coast with Latiri, so and right. Fork I think is going to be coming back through the West Coast as well. So yeah, and we always do SF Jazz with Fork. We've done that ever since we've come and played on the West Coast. So awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. dude, when you're heading out here, man, hit me up and we'll we'll get together. Definitely, would love to meet you. Awesome, likewise, in person, in person. yeah, in person. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome, man. All right, brother. Well, thank you again. Like I said, I appreciate it. Safe travels out there on the road, and uh, thank you again for doing this. Man, thank you for having me, man. Of Take course, care. Anytime. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye bye.
So there you have it, the one and only JT Thomas. For the links of everything that we talk about, you know there are show notes for every one of these episodes. Hit that up by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 314. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Cast, or whichever podcast you like to use, or whichever podcast app, I should say, whichever one you like to use. Subscribe on there. Speaking of subscribing, if you want to get the Monday mix email and you want to get the Friday wrap-up email, be sure to head over to drummersresource.com. You can sign up for the mailing list, and you'll also get a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. That is 11 creative exercises to help you with your speed, your independence, your chops, all that fun stuff. And again, that's 100% free. Just go to drummersresource.com. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.